This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to GitShirt, a podcast focused on actionable, medium-term macro insights from industry leaders. I'm your host, Matthew Schnur. I'm Vice President of Key Accounts, and my co-host, Dustin Reed, who is our Chief Fixed Income Strategist at McKenzie Investments, is here as well. Dustin, who do we have today? Hey, Matt. Well, today we have Ben Robodeau, who is a founder and president of North Cove Advisors, uh, which is a, a boutique market research firm which caters to institutional and high net worth investors. He focuses on uh, important and emerging uh, trends in the Canadian economic landscape, with particular focus on Canadian housing and household credit. Frequent contributor to a lot of media outlets, including uh, Bloomberg, Journal, Globe, Star, Canadian Papers, uh, and magazines, and he consistently ranks in the top three for Canadian economic coverage by by Brennan Woods, uh, which is which is fantastic. So we're we're thrilled to have Ben here today to talk about what a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, are very very focused on, which is not only the current state of the Canadian housing market. Uh, and the economic impact, but also the look forward on where the housing market could be going and, of course, the the economic impact. Sounds great. I'm excited for the conversation. Same here. Ben, welcome to the podcast and uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, it's really great to have you here. Maybe we can start off with uh, a quick question around just the overall uh, outlook of uh, where you see the the current housing market at the moment, and uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion. I think between, particularly in various pockets of the country, uh, sitting in Toronto, it's it's obviously a little bit in a bubble. But where do people think the housing market is currently? Um, do they think that it's a buyer's market, or do they think it's a seller's market? Sure. So maybe I'll rewind a little bit back to the spring. Um, and kind of sketch the the trajectory that we're seeing right now. Perfect. Um, so what what's we've seen is uh, as soon as interest rates started to rise, we saw a pretty pronounced impact on affordability. And so one of the simple measures that I track is just you know, what would the monthly payments be to purchase the typical home, call it the average priced home, based on prevailing rates at any point in time. You kind of model that out over time. And um, what we found is effectively over the last year and a half that um, that mortgage payment has effectively doubled. Mm. And so it's been a tremendous hit to affordability. And so it's not surprising that when interest rates started to rise, that we saw a steep drop in home sales through 2022. Um, But what happened alongside it that was probably more surprising was a concurrent decline in new listings coming to market. And we saw that sellers really moved to the sidelines. Um, They just refused to sell. And and there was some speculation around what exactly was driving that dynamic. But we were seeing consistent 20-year lows in new listings month after month after month. And so that was kind of towards the back half of 2022. And, And as a result, even though home sales were weak, um, the inventory levels remained surprisingly low. And what that set up was a pretty strong spring bounce in mm-hmm. most metros across the country. And so mm-hmm. through the spring, we saw prices rebound roughly 8 to 10% off the lows as a function of this very supply-constrained market. Now, I think what happened is over the summer, 
the back-to-back rate hikes really affected market psychology. And I think it really caught people off guard. And what we're now finding is that home sales are back under pressure. And in fact, I believe, based on conversations with frontline practitioners, that the September numbers are actually going to print surprisingly weak. And we're hearing stories that um, sales uh, across the major metros have been very weak in September and look to be, be weak in October. Now, with that, we're also starting to see inventory build again. And it kind of feels like maybe there were some prospective sellers that held on for a number of months, but are now kind of being flushed out by these higher rates. And so what I'm seeing is, is a fairly abrupt shift in the market over the last month hmm. that now looks like a more pronounced um, buyer's market. And we're starting to see prices come back under pressure again. And so that's the setup going into the fall. Um, it's hard to see at this point, like I've kind of made the point before that at various points in the housing cycle, different dynamics sort of drive the bus as it were. And, um, you know, over the longer term, the supply demand dynamics of population growth and limited new supply, that's absolutely going to matter. But over the next, I don't know, year, 18 months, however long it takes, it's really just hard to get around six and 7% mortgage rates. It's just absolutely going to drive the bus here. And so I think that's the setup that we have. It's going to be um, a bit of a, a you know, a, some, some downward pressure as we move through the fall. That's great. Maybe a follow-up. Uh, you, you talked about the demand dynamic being uh, impacted, of course, by affordability. The other thing when I think of a demand is just the number of people needing housing. And uh, immigration has been uh, such a, a large issue. I know that you've written extensively about it. What's your view on immigration and how that impacts the housing market? Well, the, the big thing that I think people are missing is just the magnitude of the non-permanent resident boom that we're seeing right now in Canada. And it's really, it's hard to overstate how significant it is. So if I just put some numbers out. So in the past year, we've seen the Canadian population expand by 1.2 million people. So about 3.5% growth rate, which is about five times the US equivalent. Um, now, among that 1.2 million, we have the, as expected, kind of the 450,000 permanent residents, which is in line with Ottawa's target. They have an annual target for permanent residency. Um, but the remainder, about 730,000, are, are non-permanent residents. And those are primarily international students and temporary workers. And there really is no target out of Ottawa for that cohort. And so we see times where it you know, it's highly pro-cyclical. It expands dramatically as the economy and the labor market is very tight. Um, and then it tends to kind of slow as the economy softens. It's very much meant to flex with the needs of the labor market. And so what we've seen is when you add 730,000 non-permanent residents into the, the population, overwhelmingly they're renters. And, and it's had the impact of really blowing out the rental market, for lack of a better word. It's just it's created really chaotic conditions in the rental market over the past year, year and a half. And that's driven a lot of people out of the rental or rental market into the ownership market. And it's also, I believe, incentivized an element of speculation where, you know, the, the economics on a single family rental, they just they don't really pencil if you're going to rent it to one family. But if instead you're going to put 10 or 12 international students and charge them each you know, 500 bucks a month and throw a mattress on the ground for them, hmm. Uh, you can make those numbers work. And we're absolutely seeing that. And so I think the the population growth at those levels are absolutely supportive of housing over the longer term. Um, I have questions around whether or not it's it's sustainable. I actually think we're going to see population growth slow just simply as a function of 
those non-permanent residents being highly pro-cyclical as we move into a, a point of time where the economy slows a little, those numbers will naturally slow. Um, but but still, population growth is, is very strong. It will be supportive of housing once we move beyond this sort of demand downturn. But but we're likely talking, you know, one or two years down the road. And in the interim, it's just hard to to get around these interest rates. So from kind of the answer to the where we started versus that one, are you concerned about prices here if we see something happening from a non-permanent resident perspective over the next, say, I know the timeline's tough, but one to two years versus, let's say, the next six months with rate hikes having kicked in? Like, what, like what's the sensitivity around the timing? Well, I think what we're probably likely to see within the next year is... Um, well, I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll make a prediction. I think population growth is peaking right now. And I believe that a year from now, we will see a significant deceleration in population growth. So I think we're probably going to move from 1.2 million, which I think everyone has now acknowledged is frankly just a disruptive number that is probably not in the long-term best interest, just given some of the externalities that we're seeing. Um, and you can already see the discussion in Ottawa around trying to be more thoughtful around the, the non-permanent resident cohort. Um, and, and so I think you have some political forces at play, but I also think just the natural economic cycle and the sort of the needs of the labor market will be such that you know, we're going to go from adding 730,000 to maybe adding two or 300,000, which is still contextually in, in the terms of you know, historical norms is a very high number. But if you go from adding 700,000 to adding 300,000, you drop your population growth down to closer to 800,000, right? Which is not a small number by any means, but it, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's still a significant deceleration. What I think it means, though, is we move from a rental market that is just blisteringly hot and, and totally chaotic to something that is a little bit less so um, and still relatively tight, but just not as kind of crazy as what we've seen over the last, the last year and a half. But how does that filter to builders? Um, so if you if you think about building these places or, or um, housing stock for renters, um, I immediately gravitate to our apartment buildings or, or larger complexes. If you're suggesting that non-permanent residents are sort of at a blip higher now, going to come back down, how do you respond as a, as a builder? Well, I think it's important to point out off the bat, we are significantly undersupplied. There, there's significant catch up that we still have to do. And so there's a, there's a fairly long runway where builders can still expand the 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 product and um, and it'll still be absorbed quite quite readily, especially in the rental market. And so, you know, we're starting to see the federal government incentivize developers. We saw them eliminate GST on new builds. We're seeing um, even just yesterday the expansion of the Canada Mortgage Bonds, um, which is is explicitly intended to provide more capacity for cheap financing for developers. Uh, there's a long runway here. We we are undersupplied, and I'm not for a moment arguing that we're going to end up with a you know, glut of empty rental apartments by any mm. means. I just think that I'm making the point that people are sort of anchoring off of this 1.2 million, and and I believe when you talk to realtors and you talk to mortgage brokers in the space, sort of a widespread view that this is the new normal, and that the population growth at these levels are going to persist. And I'm just I just don't believe that's the case. Um, and so I just think we're going to move back to something that's a little less chaotic than the what we've seen over the last year, year and a half. Ben, would you say on the commercial real estate side, which I, I think maybe you don't focus on quite as much as the, as the residential side, to be fair, but when you observe and uh, talk to people on the ground, 
what do you think is the the state of the the commercial side and uh, and the outlook here, given what you're looking at from population growth perspective, race perspective, et cetera? Well, I think the multifamily segment looks very good. We still have extremely low vacancies, so there's not really a lot of concern there. There's a, a decent pipeline of new construction in that space, but certainly you know a lot more is needed to move the needle on kind of moving vacancies back towards long-term norms. So I'm, I'm not really con- obviously not concerned about that. Um, I also think industrial looks pretty good. I look, I don't have anything unique to add here. It's pretty clear that the office space is the the one that at this point is is under some pressure. I'm not a believer that work from home is kind of the new normal. I just think we're going to get into an economic cycle at some point where, you know, there's going to be a recognition that if you're a body in the office, you're more likely to get promoted. You just, you build those networks, you build the, those connections and, um, you you roll that forward. I think people are going to realize that they need to be in those office space. They need to be together. And so I, I'm not as, um, negative on the office I would look, I would probably fade some of that kind of sentiment that you know, work from home is the new normal and office is dead. And, uh, but uh, to, to your point, I'm not an expert in that space. I'm, I'm sort of just opining and just, you know, I'm, I'm a little off my bailiwick here. Okay. Totally fair. Let's get you back to your bailiwick then. Um, we're talking in general about the housing market. I mean, notoriously, the housing market is local. What do you see when you look across Canada? I, I always think uh, you know, Toronto and Vancouver always make the headlines for affordability reasons. Um, you know, how do you view that those uh, urban segments versus uh, the rest of the country? Yeah, great point. There is no national housing market as much as we like to kind of focus on headline numbers. What we're seeing is very strong interprovincial population flows right now. So out of Ontario, okay, so people who are, when we talk interprovincial, we're talking about people who are already here that are moving within Canada from province to province. And we're seeing very strong flows out of Ontario and into Alberta particularly and also the East Coast. And and I've kind of talked about an affordability arbitrage there. And it's absolutely clear in the data that that's what's happening. Hmm. Um, And so to that point, when I look at the metros in Alberta, they look rock solid. And in fact, in, in 2021, I was kind of pounding the table that one of the easiest kind of calls to make in the housing space was that we would see a catch up trade where Calgary would close the gap relative to the rest of Canada in terms of pricing. Um, and we're, at, we're starting to see that. I think it's got a long ways to go. But when I look at metros like Calgary, we're looking at 20 year lows in resale inventory. We're looking at all-time highs for sales. We're looking at record population growth, not just internationally, but including interprovincially. We're looking at a very robust economy and labor market and and very affordable housing. And so, um, and not just relative to the rest of Canada, but even relative to its own history, it's still it's still quite affordable. So it's hard not to be bullish on some of those areas, even if you sort of have a you know, a, a more muted outlook on oil. I still think some of these those areas are going to do well. And the other, like I said, is Atlantic Canada, where we're seeing very similar dynamics, very low resale inventory, of strong affordability dynamics, and uh, very strong population flows. Um, so I think that's important. Um, I'm less concerned about Quebec. Quebec is kind of just chugging along. There's not really, you know, the sales are weak, prices are soft, but nothing looks particularly vulnerable there. I'm very concerned about Southern Ontario and and also Southern BC, where I see hmm. very pronounced affordability pressures. But also importantly, we're seeing some of the most rapid 
inventory accumulation that we've seen in the last 30 years in those two areas. And that's happening right now. And so we're seeing concurrently weakening demand, a very rapid rise in resale supply. Um, It looks like a precursor to another leg lower in those areas. When you chat with some of the mortgage brokers and real estate agents, in particular for Southern Ontario, is that, do you get a kind of a a bad vibe from them in terms of just massive oversupply coupled with the rate side? I mean, is this going to be a, is this going to be a, a very drawn out, drawn down period? And if that happens, how... How much can kind of the wings of the country, uh, particularly I think Alberta, Calgary, and maybe kind of you know Atlantic, Canada, actually um, see a relatively stable housing market? I talk pretty regularly with frontline contacts. I'll often have clients come and we'll we'll go kick tires and talk to mortgage brokers, insolvency trustees, realtors, that whole gamut. Uh-huh. Um, one thing that's very striking, uh, and I was actually just there yesterday meeting with some folks, is. Um, I alluded to the beginning, but I believe we've seen a dramatic change in the last three weeks that has not yet been reflected in the data. So I met with everyone a month ago and the tone change in one month was, was very noticeable and I would hmm. say dramatic. So there's been a, a significant change in the demand dynamics for sure. We're seeing a significant inventory build in the last month. I wouldn't characterize it as a massive oversupply issue. So if I look just at standing inventory in Ontario and BC, we're still only about half of kind of the pre-COVID normal levels. And so this is not a dramatically oversupplied market, but what I guess is concerning is the trajectory, right? We are seeing inventory building rapidly off the low base, but still building and sales that are already, I mean, to contextualize the demand side, um, sales are at levels that we last saw in the late 1990s and early 2000s outside of the financial crisis and the early days of COVID. So I mean, just to contextualize it, it's, it's a very weak demand dynamic right now in Southern Ontario and BC. Um, you could almost argue that it's unsustainably low, like it, you really can't stay this week given how population growth is, but it gives you a sense of just how serious this, the affordability pressures are when sales are effectively back to 30-year lows. Um, so that's that's where we're at in terms of what this means for the broader market. It's hard to get really bullish on anywhere in Canada with interest rates at six to seven percent. I would be relatively more bullish on the the prairies and Atlantic Canada mm-hmm. uh, for those reasons we discussed. But I still think interest rates at these levels, given any any significant length of time, I just think it frankly, just breaks things. Um, I think we're, you know, we're a very levered Canadian household sector here in Canada. Um, and it's just, uh, frankly, a matter of time, I believe, before these rates really begin to hurt. And so it's, it's hard to be bullish on anything for the next little while, but I certainly I'd be more optimistic on those areas than, say, Southern Ontario. Just to, to circle back on Southern Ontario, you talked about supply dynamics and a lot of supply coming online. Is that in the form of condos, single uh, family homes? Is it both? And what, what's the mix there? And what's your view on those markets? So right now we're seeing inventory build across the board. We're seeing a significant jump in new listings in condos. So right now it's kind of bifurcated. It's the high end single family that is weakest and the kind of downtown condo that skews towards investors. Hmm. Those are the two segments that are weakest. The kind of entry level single family. So whether that's kind of semis or just lower priced um, detached is holding up reasonably. 
reasonably well relative to the, the rest of the market. Um, one thing I'm quite concerned about, and I think is going to be the big story for next year, is uh, completions in the condo space. We're starting to see an acceleration in completions. And the problem is, if you if you roll back to, say, four years ago when these condos were pre-sold, right? So, so typically in Canada, developers will pre-sell units. They enter into purchase agreements with buyers, and then they deliver those units four years down the road. Right. Now, historically, pre-construction would trade at about a 15% premium to resale. So you could buy a pre-construction home that isn't going to be delivered for four years, and you would pay about 15% premium to that same unit in the resale market today. So they've sort of already embedded some price appreciation into that price. Um, It was never a problem because we've always seen upward price pressure. And so by the time those condos completed, the resale market had more than caught up to to those prices. Right. Now, what we saw is in 2019, 2020, 2021, that premium started to expand and it got to the point where at, in 2020 and 2021, it was 25 to 30 percent premium over resale. And so now you have a situation where we're beginning to see condos that are completing that don't appraise at the purchase price. And it's causing some real problems. So not only are people so so in that situation, just just to just to frame it, if you're a pre-construction condo buyer and, and you thought you were buying a condo for five hundred thousand, but the banks say, well, we don't think it's only worth four hundred and fifty, and we'll lend eighty percent of four fifty. Well, you effectively have a capital call, right? right? You have to pony up to get the mortgage, which not everybody has. And 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 secondarily, we had a lot of people who bought, purchased it with the intention of assigning it. Right. These were investors and, and really had no, not necessarily any intention or frankly, any ability given current interest rates to close. This is a big problem. And, and I think it's going to be the big area of focus in kind of 2024, 2025, as we see. So in Toronto, we have 80,000 condos currently in construction. Um, I would suspect we'll see probably a third of those will have some level of distress at closing. Uh, which wow. is not a small number in the context of kind of an annual condo demand of somewhere around fifteen to twenty thousand in the resale market. So to contextualize it, that's one of the things I'm watching in terms of like a you know particular areas of kind of idiosyncratic vulnerability. Could you say the same thing around that issue for twenty four and twenty five for other larger centers like Vancouver, maybe Montreal? Less so Montreal. We we didn't really see. There's actually not a ton of condo construction. There's a lot of purpose-built rentals, but not a ton of condo construction. And, and we don't see the same gap between new build and resale in, in Montreal. Um, it will be a problem in Vancouver, less of a problem, though, just, again, the same dynamic. It's, it was less of a – it really is a function of embedding that 30% premium into the purchase price. Um, that you know you, you need that natural lift to be able to close. And, and that wasn't there to the same extent in Vancouver. Um, but I think the bigger issue in Vancouver is just going to be affordability. People entered into pre-construction condos back when mortgage rates were 3%. Maybe they could have closed at 3%, but they're going to have a really hard time managing the finances or qualifying even at, say, 6 or 7%. Um, and so that will be an issue. I, I think you'll see some. We're already seeing signs of stress there. Um, I think it's going to get considerably worse over the next year, year and a half. Maybe we can switch gears uh, slightly. Obviously, the Bank Bank Canada has come in with a couple more over the summer, June, July. When I look at the market, the OIS curve, uh, it's pricing basically 50-50 
for another 25 at the October meeting, maybe slightly above that, maybe it's 14 basis points, assuming they do 25. And then 28 throughout, 27, 28 throughout the strip through the end of Q1, that's the peak. If the bank hikes one more time, uh, or maybe even twice, for whatever reason, uh, how significant is it, how sensitive will it be for current holders, people that need to reset, and obviously kind of the uh, that condo situation that uh, you just mentioned for 2425. Well, at this point, I, I think the discussion, like what's much more relevant at this point is not how high rates are going to go. I don't really think another 25 or another 50 bips at this point is going gonna, is gonna to matter in and of itself. The, the much bigger question is how long rates are going to stay this high or, or anywhere close to these levels. And that's much more impactful for for consumers. It's 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 more the the duration of high rates than the absolute level that they're going to hit, um, and and that's the much bigger question. So when we look ahead, we know that just based on bank disclosures, we have very large renewal years in 2024 and 2025. Um, and when we look at the the some of the rate shocks that we're going to be seeing based on some of the work from the Bank of Canada. Based on the mortgage term at origination, you're looking at anywhere from a 20 to 60% hit on the monthly payment at renewal, uh, with the, the, the highest being the kind of static payment variable rate mortgages, which is kind of a unique Canadian construct that we have these variable rate mortgages that hold your payment constant and extend the amortization instead to kind of hold payments. Hmm. As those renew, they have to revert back to the original amortization schedule. And so they kind of have a double whammy uh, as they renew. And, and so we're looking in some cases at, up, like I said, 50, 60 percent payment shocks based on where rates are today. So that's th- that is going to be tremendously impactful. Um, and, and that's again, I think that's the bigger question here is if we are, in fact, in a higher for longer environment, I think that's much more impactful than just a spike up to let's say seven, seven and a half percent mortgage rates. And then a year from now, we're back down to three and a half or four percent. That's probably not going to be as disruptive as two, three, four years of rates in the kind of five, six percent range. I'm curious, going through the conversation, we talked about supply being a a constraint and and that you weren't worried about oversupply in the market um, and then the population growth um, and and certainly the affordability with interest rates being so high uh, plays a a key role. They seem that they're at at tension. Uh, So you'd have uh, more demand, presumably, as more Canadians uh, or more people come uh, to be Canadians. and supply not responding. So how, how do you square those two uh, sources of tension in your mind? Well, I want to be clear. It's not that I'm not concerned about supply. I, I, I'm not, I, I think if you take a snapshot over the longer term, it's clear that we have an undersupply of single family homes that, that looks to be a structural problem. What we have right now is a cyclical issue of probably a weakening resale market And again, it gets back to timelines and kind of what I was trying to explain off the bat, which is that depending on where you are in the housing cycle, different dynamics are going to matter more than others. And so right now we can have all those conversations about a structural issue with supply and demand over the longer term. And it's not really going to matter over the next year, who knows how long, when we have interest rates where they are. It's just nothing else really matters when you have 6 and 7% mortgage rates. Now, what I what I worry about, and and one of the scenarios I've kind of sketched out for my clients is I think if you look at what's happening with building permits 
and particularly for single family. Like you really have to disaggregate single family out of the headline because um, there's a lot of noise in the multifamily segment. We have housing starts in multifamily today that represent pre-sales from a year and a half ago. Okay. And so there's a long lag in the multifamily that makes it more noise than signal. But if you instead isolate what's happening in single family, which is a much better indicator of kind of real-time economic conditions, we're seeing a dramatic decline in construction activity in single family. Dramatic decline. And, and so when we roll that forward, what I worry about is we go through a period of some sort of an adjustment in the resale market where we have declining prices, weak demand, uh, an inventory build for a, for a period of a year, maybe two years. I'm not sure what it's going to look like. But on the other side of that is demand eventually and inevitably normalizes. It's going to normalize into a very supply constrained market that has not nearly enough new build capacity coming online to meet that. And we end up with kind of the, the, the ultimate whipsaw effect where we go from a weak market to very quickly snapping back to, to a very undersupplied hmm. market. And that's one of the things I think that's, that's, that's a, a fairly plausible scenario at this point. So it's really a matter of timelines. I, I, I'm not concerned. I mean, I'm, I would say we're underbuilding over the longer term, and in the interim, over the next little while, we're going to have a, a, a weak market just as a function of these these rates where they are. Does that make sense? That's kind of you know, it's if we're talking a year, I'm bearish. If we're talking you know three, four years, whatever, I, I think I'm very bullish. Yeah, that definitely makes makes sense. Yeah, it kind of gets back to what I was uh, asking about, kind of the the timeline earlier uh, question, because I think it's yeah, it's a bit of a, an around the corner view, which I think is always you know generally right. Um, things don't generally move in a straight line forever, and uh, yeah, so I think that that really helps frame it out. Maybe one last question before we um, before we wrap it up. Obviously, there's a fair bit of difference in the structural difference between the mortgage market here domestically in Canada and and in the US and you were alluding to it a minute ago Ben the um you know kind of the 5 year but the amortization is end, ends up getting played with do you this is a very impossible question but do you foresee any changes major changes on the Canadian horizon and or what would it take to actually get what I would call a true 25 or 30 year mortgage that you hold for 25 or 30 years in Canada, like you can on residences in the U S that's a great question. So I think, well, first off it would, it would require a rewriting of the bank act. So the, yeah, the, right. the fundamental reason we don't have 30 year mortgages is because we cap the, the, um, as far as I understand it, the, uh, prepayment penalties that the banks can charge. And so as a result, there's no way for them to necessarily hedge out mm. their interest rate exposure um, on a 30-year mortgage. Uh, so that's look, that's a policy thing that it, it could be addressed. It would just need a, a, a rewriting of the Bank Act. Um, it would. It's an interesting discussion. I I think it. Like I mean, 30-year mortgages have worked pretty well in the states, uh, notwithstanding the 0809 debacle, which really was right. not a kind of standard, you know, bread and butter mortgage issue. It was, it was much more of a you know the 228 option arm right. reset exotic products. But right. but the, the bread and butter 30-year mortgage is really no reason to, to argue against that. What I worry about though uh, is because of the nature of the U.S. mortgage market. Uh, and the fact that their households have already gone through a deleveraging cycle. Mm-hmm. If we look at a simple measure like the household debt service ratio, which just captures the share of household disposable income in aggregate that is uh, required to service principal and interest payments broadly. 
Um, we're seeing a record gap right now between Canada and the U.S., where Canadian households are already pushing record highs and U.S. households are kind of bumping along near record lows. And what it suggests to me is the fact that you have a, a pretty solid household balance sheet in the U.S., plus the fact that they've locked in for 30 years, as have many corporations. Uh, I wonder if the U.S. won't be more resilient to higher rates and if that won't necessitate a higher and more hawkish Fed for longer, even as Canada's domestic economy begins to weaken as these rates flow through much quicker to our much more indebted households. And in that circumstance, I I wonder if that won't paint a scenario where the Canadian curve trades more sympathetic with the U.S., even as the Bank of Canada hmm. you know, does not want to, 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 to be forced into a hawkish stance. And consequently, we have you know, the standard fixed rate mortgages that are much higher than perhaps the domestic economy would warrant. Um, I do worry about that. And, and it's something that I'm, I'm certainly watching because I do think we're going to start to see pretty significant weakness here in Canada that may take longer to filter through to the U.S. Yeah, I think that's... I think it's very accurate, and I think that, that that risk around the Fed higher for longer versus Canada higher for longer, because of that, exactly, that, that difference in the structure of the mortgage market makes uh, makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, here, I think in many ways, having been on both sides of the border, um, you know, you effectively have like have 525s or 530s here, right? You kind of reset, which is not quite the same as what the arm you know, the adjustable rate mortgage debacle from, you know, the mid 2000s that caused in many ways 07, 08, 09. But uh, I, I do think that having, uh, enabling banks to, to hedge it out here would probably have good, long-term good implications for the housing market and less volatility for, uh, frankly, for homeowners, not investors per se, but for homeowners, which uh, obviously is a lot of good things from a, from a society and from a community perspective. So. Yeah, no, great, great points, Ben. Thank you. Maybe we'll call it there, actually. This has been just a, a fascinating conversation. I've learned a lot, Ben. Uh, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on Get Sharp. Uh, it was just a, a tremendous conversation. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. It's great. Thanks a lot, Ben. Justin, we just had this great conversation with Ben. I learned a lot about the Canadian housing market. Uh, One thing that sticks with me is uh, immigration. I mean, I've certainly read the headlines. I knew there was a lot of immigration, but the the non-permanent resident number really surprised me. And uh, and Chuck, what was your takeaway on, on that number? Yeah, for sure. That was a great, uh, a great conversation. Learned, learned definitely a, a number of things. The big number is kind of in the territory where I think I have. We've been looking a million, a million plus. One two is probably on the one point two is probably on the high end of that. But yeah, to your point, kind of the breakdown in terms of uh, permanent residents versus non-permanent residents is is uh, yeah, it's it's a big number, seven hundred thirty thousand non-permanent residents. I'm probably not as um, uh, depends how you say it, but bearish on the idea that uh, n- numbers are going to be significantly lower. I think uh, hmm. I think the numbers cannot come that much lower that quickly. I I think it's difficult for this administration, uh, this government, the Trudeau government, to mit- basically have have that number or or even more. Um, by by his count, I mean, if you're right. getting if you're starting at 720 and you're getting down to 300, then I guess you'd be more than half. That seems challenging to me. Uh, a because I don't think the government's going to work that quickly, and B 
this is a coalition government that is also uh, obviously in coalition with the NDP. And I'm not I'm not convinced just from a policy plank perspective that that the NDP would would be okay with that. I could be wrong, but uh, so I'm not sure we're going to get that deceleration in immigration. Uh, the delta, uh, uh, the change to the degree that uh, Ben thinks in the next, I'll, I'll say 12 months, maybe even slightly inside 12 months or slightly outside 12 months. So that, right. I mean, that that obviously matters uh, because if you had uh, 500,000, 600,000 decrease in, in non-permanent residents, uh, that, that would clearly impact the rental market, uh, presumably less demand. And it would obviously in turn have a significant impact of the need, quote unquote, his term really to, for people to jump into uh, buying, buying houses, uh, well, buying, buying homes, right. whether that's houses or multifamily units, condo units, et cetera. So we'll have to see how that plays out. StatsCan's pretty good on the quarterly data. Yeah. So let's, let's see. But I think going from kind of one to... Uh, down to 700 uh, or so is, I don't know. We'll have we'll have to see. I'm I'm a I'm a little bit skeptical, but I think Ben has, you know, obviously has some really great points on if it does happen, what it, what it could mean for the next, you know, 12 to 18 months in terms of uh, in terms of price and de- and uh, and demand dynamics. Sure. Yeah. The point that he brought up, which which I thought is uh, quite clever uh, that you're addressing somewhat is there's a regulatory or there's a, a policy perspective uh, to this, but there's also just the pro-cyclicality of this segment of the market. So uh, right. maybe maybe you know, you'll split the difference or, or something like that. We'll see. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious on his comment, higher for longer being more important than the peak of interest rates. Um, it, it, do you share that view? Yeah, that was an interesting view for sure. Um, I think it's still very much TBD because we're coming out of a very different period, obviously, with the pandemic and inflation and rates at zero or effective zero lower bound, uh, as you would say it in economic speak. And, uh, you know, just exactly how long we need to be at higher for longer. And this thematic that we've talked about on kind of our other podcasts in terms of you know, is three percent inflation good enough? And you know, there's probably three, three camps inside most of the central banks, right? Some will say two percent. You know, that's that's the number. Some will say three percent. I'm okay with that. And some will be in the middle. And it's not totally clear which way it's going to go. And so I think that makes it uh, challenging in terms of you know what what is what needs to be higher for longer. But even when you look at uh, like we were talking about, I think recently, uh, when you look at even the Fed's forecast um, going out to now 2026, it has its Fed funds rate above the the R star rate for the for the balance of the forecast period, and that that tells you very much higher for longer. So, will it impact the housing market? Yeah, absolutely. I think it will impact the housing market. I'm probably I've heard too much anecdotal stories, and maybe I'm reading the wrong stuff, or I'm a little too Toronto centric or Southern Ontario centric. But every 25 basis point that goes here is really going to impact a number of uh, a significant uh, portion of home buyer, homeowners, and mortgage holders hmm. really uh, on the margin. So I think it's I think it's both. And um, one thing I, I take away over the last, where are we now? 14 months, I guess, since the July Bank of Canada meeting, July 22, uh, 2022 Bank of Canada meeting, where they had, which is a forecast meeting, NPR uh, meeting, and they had the press conference and they did not seem at the time very concerned about 
uh, variable rate mortgages having an impact on not only the housing market, but the economy. And I remember watching that press conference and thinking, wow, I'm, A, I don't totally agree with that. And B, I'm surprised at kind of, I think I, the term I used at the time was kind of the nonchalant focus on it or lack of focus on it. I think they've somewhat centered since then and are a little bit more focused on it. Right. You know, the bank can the bank can, you know, do higher for longer as well. And Macklem is very focused on getting the two percent, apparently. And if that's true, then you know, Ben will be right. It will very much be a higher for longer story. But uh I do think any any marginal increase in rates here is going to be is going to be felt by a, a not insignificant portion of the population. It's gonna be it's gonna be very challenging for them. That's a great context, Dustin. Good, good to fill that out. My big takeaway is just the dynamics of the condo market. I, I don't understand yeah. why it's something that you take delivery in four years would trade at a, a massive premium, but uh, here we are. Uh, so yeah. I'll take. I don't have a question with that, Dustin. I'll just take that <laughs> away. Shiny new, shiny people want the shiny new asset, right? I guess so. I guess so. That must be it. Well, Dustin, this was uh, excellent. Uh, it's real pleasure speaking with Ben and, and hearing your views. Yes, same here. Great to do this uh, this podcast with you and look forward to the next one. As do I. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.